Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Mary Olson at Airly Winery. It's uh, July 16th, 2019. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Um, why wine? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> that, I always liked wine, and, um, and I like uh, going to the wineries, visiting wineries, and um, so why not wine? How did you, you talk about developing your interest, uh, was there a particular part of your life that was like when you started drinking wine or started getting interested in it? Well, I, I didn't grow up around alcohol at all. Um, not that my parents were actually against it. My dad did make rhubarb wine that was absolutely awful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there would be no reason to drink wine um, at our house. But, but um, as I got older, I liked going out for dinner and having a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and um, so all my working career before this career, mm -hmm. I would uh, have a lot of dinners that I'd have to go to, and so wine was always part of it. And at one point I was transferred to Oregon, and um, that's when I fell in love with the wine industry mm -hmm. because I could, I'd go out on the weekends to visit wineries when friends came to visit. Mm -hmm. It was great fun, and, and it was kind of in the early days of Oregon in the 1990, about 1990, and, and um, so all the wineries were pretty small. You usually got to talk to somebody who actually was making it or, or at least was familiar mm -hmm. on how it was made and, and uh, it was just kind of a fun experience. So that's why wine. Sure. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing before wine, before you got into this career. Well, after I graduated from college, I went to work for um, the telephone company, Northwestern Bell at the time. I, I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to a school in Minnesota. And I was hired in 1974, and at that time I didn't know there was a recession going on because we weren't paying much attention to recessions. We were too busy marching and protesting and doing <laughs> other things college kids were doing in the in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And um, but I got hired on with the telephone company in their management development program, and um, and so I had a, a nice 22-year career with uh, Northwestern Bell and then U.S. West when it when the Bell system broke up. Mm -hmm. And um, at one point I was transferred to Oregon. Mm -hmm. And so I was transferred all over. That meant um, eating out a lot because um, I was uh, on the road uh, at the end of my career there uh, on the road four or five days a week mm -hmm. sometimes. But, um, but wine was always the kind of thing that kind of made everything all right. Uh, <laughs> that uh, just a glass of wine at the end of the day was always a nice thing to have with a meal. So when I got transferred to Oregon, um, I uh, just fell in love with this state. This is the best state in the whole United States and I've seen a lot of them. And, uh, but this is Minnesota friendly without the bad weather. <laughs> it's great. Uh, it has the best food sources here. I mean everything's so fresh. And, uh, and, the, and the wines were just delicious. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the first time that I was exposed to Pinot Noir because mm -hmm. it wasn't kind of on the regular menus in many of the restaurants that I went to. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I was kind of exposed to Pinot Noir and, and fell in love with that lovely red grape that can be so fickle at times. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's kind of uh, what I did at the telephone company. At the end, I was... Um, 
uh, our corporate officer, and and um, I like to tell people in the tasting room they finally promoted me high enough. They found out they liked me better from afar, <laughs> <laughs> and so here I am. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. I like yeah. that. <laughs> it took me a long time to come up with that phrase, but it's a good one. <laughs> You talked about kind of falling in love with the Oregon wine industry here. Tell me about your kind of initial impressions of the wine industry as you start as you started to kind of learn about it here. Everybody you went out and talked to was excited about what they were doing. And um, and so they would and more than willing to share what they were doing. And most of the wineries were very small at the time. Um, and so um, it was just exciting to talk to people that were that excited about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And and um, and it looked like it was a pretty cool lifestyle. Um, I didn't fool myself into thinking that it was easy because I grew up in Wisconsin in dairy country. Mm -hmm. All my uncles were dairy farmers. My f I actually grew up in a small town, but all my uncles were dairy farmers. So I kind of knew a little bit about farming. Um, and I knew that you had to be willing to just fix fences and fix tractors and if you had to call somebody every time something broke you were going to go broke. <laughs> and so um, so I kind of knew a little bit about farming but not a lot about wine other than I drank it. Mm -hmm. um, but it just did impress me as, as just a cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. And um, so, th so I started when I was transferred to Oregon in uh, 1990. I spent two years here as a general manager for the telephone company and traveled the state. And, um, and, and like I said, on weekends I'd like to go out to the wineries um, if I had a weekend to spend. Um, and, and, uh, but I just fell in love with the state and the wine industry and I so jokingly started telling my friends in my next life I was going to buy a winery and move back to Oregon. And, um, and so I didn't know my next life was going to come along that soon, but it came along in 1996. Um, and I came out here for a harvest to help. I'd actually been out here on vacation looking at various properties. At that time, I didn't know that everything was for sale. <laughs> that, that, uh, now I know. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, uh, it didn't appear that there was much for sale. Mm -hmm. and, and there might not have been at that time. Um, so I was actually looking at bare ground and thought, well, maybe I'll have to plant grapes and wait five years and blah, 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 blah. But um, the realtor I was dealing with said, well, you know, there's this couple that they talk about retiring and it's about the size that you, you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, big enough to have a winemaker, but small enough not to be big. And and because um, I'd been there, done that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we came out and talked to uh, Larry and Alice Preeti, who owned the winery before me. And um, I came and helped them with the first harvest, uh, my first harvest mm -hmm. in 1996. And, um, and then I bought it in, in January of 1997. So uh, Larry always said to me, because the harvest of 96 was wet and cold. That was a wet, cold harvest. He said, if you like this, you're really going <laughs> to like it when you get to pick grapes when it's not raining. So, uh, so anyway, so I've been here since January of 1997. Tell me about that first harvest experience. I mean, besides being wet, what, what, what was it like doing that for the first time? It was... Um, kind of a rush of adrenaline all the time. Mm -hmm. I was actually commuting from Portland because I was staying with a friend's mother who needed help. So I would get up early in the morning, and but I was used to working 12-hour days mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, it was just different time of, type of work. <laughs> um, I would get in my little red car and I'd drive down here and usually be here around seven o'clock and um, and and or seven thirty and and uh, they had me doing everything that involved a hose <laughs> and I was free <laughs> so um, so so anyway uh, so I cleaned a lot of tanks I, I uh, cleaned the press mm -hmm. uh, we did everything with cold water back then and uh, I asked Larry later when uh, my, when when my first winemaker was hired and she goes why are we washing everything with cold water instead of using the karsher and I said I don't know I, that's what we did and anyway I asked Larry and he said well it's cheaper <laughs> <laughs> and we had you to do it so <laughs> Even cheaper still. Even cheaper still. <laughs> that um, so uh, so the first harvest it was uh, a, a little. I mean, I walked down to the vineyard. I did take some grape samples. I hope they didn't actually use them. I didn't know a lot of what I was doing at that time. I could tell the white grapes from the red grapes, but that was about it. <laughs> um, that um, and and. Um, but so that first, I was really just a harvest rat, mm -hmm. and, and uh, but it's still. I always did like physical labor, so it was it was still fun, mm -hmm. and um, and it was out. And the best part at that time, they were doing pump overs for the Pinot and in great big tanks, and we've since changed all that, but but, um, but sitting up on top of that tank and just smelling the wine, mm -hmm. okay, as it was progressing through, mm -hmm. was pretty cool. Um, the 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 most frightening part was sitting up on top of the tank on a hot day when all the all the uh, hornets Oof. were uh, and I used to be afraid of hornets but I'm I'm not anymore <laughs> you just have to get over it <laughs> if you don't bother them they usually don't bother you <laughs> so you just kind of carry on with your work um, but I was here for I would say three weeks it was a good three weeks during harvest mm -hmm. and um, and I did enjoy it I did enjoy it. What made you decide this was the place you wanted to purchase? Um, you know that I didn't. To be honest, I didn't put a lot of thought into it. There wasn't a lot available. It was about the right size. Um, <coughs> that um, I t I tasted their wines, um, um, and I tasted a lot worse. <laughs> and um, um, and and so I thought it had uh, good potential in terms of uh, wine making and the grapes, um, and and. I get to live here. I mean, I still think this is just, a, I still grin every morning when I get up and I get to live here. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so part of it was size, part of it was location. I liked, I liked um, um, the area around here and I've grown to really like the area around here. Um, it was a little isolated, which was a little concerning um, that um, there was only, there wasn't a lot of wineries around, Eola Hills, up on 99, mm -hmm. and Taiyi south of Corvallis, mm -hmm. and me, mm -hmm. and that was it. Um, and and um, and so, um, the closest wineries, a good 20, 20 miles, 25 miles away. Mm -hmm. um, but that that's all changed too mm -hmm. since the 90s. Yeah. Tell me about as you kind of got to know this place. What what makes it special? What is it about the this particular place that, that appeals to you? I think uh, well, part of it appeals to me from a grape grower, and part of it just frustrates me as an owner. We have what I call the Newport Corridor, mm -hmm. 
And so everybody's heard of the Van Duzer Corridor. Well, there's a Newport Corridor too. And it comes, so we get uh, evening winds. Um, so I would say probably three out of four nights have a pretty good breeze here, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of nice when it's warm. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be frustrating if you just want to sit outside and read a book um, and, 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 um, and not have wind on, on you constantly. So, uh, but I like that for the grapes. Um, this is a little bit cooler site. Um, it was perhaps too cool in the beginning. Um, and but that has all changed much too rapidly in my estimation. Hmm. It's kind of scary, but um, the um, the weather changes have actually benefited this site because it's become a warmer site. Hmm. But it still is cool in comparison to a lot of the sites around here, and I think that's due to the Newport corridor, hmm. kind of where we're we're located. Hmm. So I think that's one of the things that makes it special. I think one of the things that makes it special is it is a little isolated. I think when people come up the driveway and they get up here and they look and they see it, they go, wow, we had no idea mm -hmm. that this was going to be up here. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, so, so that, the little bit of the isolation and the peacefulness, I mean, when you can sit outside and look at the stars and no Minnesota mosquitoes around, <laughs> it's just delightful. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about the history of Airly before you purchased it. You mentioned the people you bought it from. Tell me a little bit about uh, when it was planted and kind of its history before you. Sure. Um, Larry and Alice Preedy owned Airly Winery. Um, well, they actually owned the land, and they actually had Christmas trees on it. They were Kansas wheat farmers that came up to Oregon. And... Um, and they planted Christmas, he did a lot of different things before they bought this land, but they planted Christmas trees. And it's my understanding, um, in the early 80s, the, the Christmas tree market took a dip, just like all farming has its ebbs and flows. And the grapes were just kind of starting to take off. So in 1983, they decided to plant grapes. And so customers still remember, not too many of them anymore, but still remember, if you the winery opened in 86, um, customers still remembered it, that if you bought a case of wine, you could go cut down a Christmas tree <laughs> <laughs> as one of their promotions back in the early 80s. Um, so that because they planted it in sections as they harvested the trees, okay. and so um, and so as they harvested the trees, they would uh, they would. Uh, they would plant grapes. Um, they did most of the work themselves with their daughter Jennifer, um, and and um, and so uh, they started planting in '83 and finished about in '91 mm -hmm. in terms of the 30 acres of grapes. So when you, when you became the owner, uh, what was it? Uh, what kind of skills did you did you find you needed to have? What kind of things did you have to to learn to kind of run this place? The really great thing about the Oregon wine industry is the grape grower group, and I don't attend it very often anymore in Salem, but you could go every month and talk to grape growers free. No dues, no nothing, just hang out with grape growers and they'll tell you anything. And Larry had given me a piece of advice. He said, if you want to know anything, just ask. And, um, and then you'll get three or four or five different opinions, and then you'll have to make up your mind <laughs> what, what you're going to do. But, um, but the grape growers themselves are, from a vineyard standpoint, are really generous with their time and will help almost anybody with anything. Um, it's a close-knit group.
I, um, one of the things I had to learn um, uh, was um, I had all of Larry's records, as so the first year I just followed his spray schedule and did exactly what he did the year before, kind of, and, and um, but then over the years you kind of educate yourself in terms of what you wanted to do, and it was early on that I decided to join the live program, and, um, and, and um, I think that's made a difference in the wine and, and in the, in the um, vineyard as well, mm -hmm. but it sure makes a difference in my heart. Um, <laughs> it just feels like the right thing to do, um, to be paying attention to how you treat the earth, how you treat your employees, and how you treat uh, your customers. Those are my three, three um, things that I, I always try to pay attention to. Um, so the farming itself, um, that, that um, I was pretty clever in terms of trying to figure out how to fix tractors and how to fix um, various things without having to call somebody every time something <laughs> broke because things are going to break. Mm -hmm. And so um, that I always had kind of an instinct on how to fix things. Mm -hmm. So that, that was helpful. Um, a big thing was finding a mobile mechanic. That's still a big thing in our industry. Um, there's not enough people that know how to fix things. And, um, and there's not enough of them that are mobile. <laughs> and, and, um, and so uh, learning who to call, I, I, uh, I've always been willing to, uh, to admit I don't know something and to go ask. So asking is not a problem. Albany's a very handy community because there's almost any kind of craft um, and lots of skilled people in Albany and so I would be standing down at my tractor shed and call somebody and I said if you had a bad uh, uh, starter on your John Deere 2365 where would you put these two things to test to see if it's the starter? And the guy would laugh on the phone and he'd say, that's a very good question and it's very simple. <laughs> and so then you find out, you find out uh, what the problem is and, and that it indeed needs replacement, but then you find out that you've, you're in a male industry <laughs> where they would happen to put the starter where you'd have to take off the front end loader in order to get it off, according to John Deere. And I'm sitting there going, there is no way I'm taking off the whole front end. So you learn how to bend wrenches and talk to neighbors and how to get screws out of bad spots. And, and, um, and I've often said that if women had been in farming in a big way a long time ago, it would be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> because we would never put up with this for this long. And it has gotten easier, but, but there are some foolish things that you just sit there and say, really? Who thought of that? <laughs> but um, in terms of the winemaking, the best decision I ever made was to no understand I didn't know how to make wine mm -hmm. and didn't pretend I did. I think that's a big mistake that people can make because they think how ha hard can it be and it's harder than you think <laughs> um, because it's that art and science so I hired a winemaker and I was very fortunate both times I've had to hire a winemaker um, that um, it's it's um, I know a little bit more about hiring winemakers now than I did back then mm -hmm. so the first time I was extremely lucky because I had no idea I interviewed people and and um, talked to him, and, and uh, I hired Susie Gagné um, as my first winemaker, and um, partially because she had, she'd, uh, she had a degree from UC Davis, mm -hmm. so I thought 
she probably is educated in how to make wine. Mm -hmm. She was excited about how to make wine. Mm -hmm. And she was working for somewhere where she was not uh, really allowed to make much of the decisions. Mm -hmm. But she was happy working with them. But she was really excited to, to come. And um, she unfortunately died of a brain, brain aneurysm at a young age. Mm -hmm. So that was another big life's lesson is do what you love because you don't know um, that tomorrow might never come. And um, she did what she loved and, and, um, and it showed. But, but uh, so the first time I was lucky, um, Susie just kind of came into my life. The second time I wasn't, I did, it was a little bit more skill because uh, of the coolness of our industry when Susie died after she'd been with me for eight years, um, other wineries just sent help because mm -hmm. they knew I had wine intake and in barrels mm -hmm. and I wasn't the winemaker. And so th I'd get calls and they'd say, we're sending, we're sending somebody for the week. Mm -hmm. Just, they'll, they'll take a look at what you got and top the barrels and mm -hmm. check all the wines and they helped with bottling. Um, and Elizabeth was one of those people that Myron sent Elizabeth to help. Hmm. And um, Elizabeth and Darcy showed up a couple times, and uh, and after I kind of got over the initial shock uh, that I really had to do something, um, I called up Myron and I said, "Okay, Myron, if you were going to hire a winemaker right now, who would you hire?" And uh, he all he only had one question for me. He said, "What did you pay Susie?" <laughs> and I told him, and Elizabeth has been with me ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and that was perfect. I mean, it, it, it really has turned out to be perfect. Um, so um, I think a big part of learning for me has to know what you don't know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, be, and be willing to learn. It, it, there is never enough learning. And um, I have now been in the industry almost 22 years and it cycles through. I mean, we, I've seen fads come and go, mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. pump over, don't pump over, do this, do that. Mm -hmm. but, um, but the reading and the literature, it's just an endless quest, which is one of the things I've, I like the most, mm -hmm. is that there is never an end to what you might be able to do to make just a little bit better wine. Mm -hmm. And that's the fun part of it. Mm. Yeah. like that. When you started uh, here and you started to hire people and mm -hmm. you weren't really sure yet what you were looking for, what did you look for? What were, your, what were kind of the qualifications you're looking for? Well, in my, um, I'm a pretty good judge of people. And I believe, um, that's why I was really lucky on the winemaker side because there is a skill there that um, you can't necessarily learn. You have to have some innate, um, uh, you can, you can, you can. Uh, I have, I have learned to be a better taster, for example, so that you can get better mm -hmm. at what you're doing. But if you really aren't very good at um, tasting, um, and you can, and and somehow you just don't have the ability to smell, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that would be a, 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 a fatal flaw that can't be fixed mm -hmm. uh, in this industry. But anything else, I've always believed in people. Hmm. I, I, at the telephone company, the last job I had, I had close to 10,000 people. And so when Susie came to work for me, and she was my first employee, I did tell her, I said, um, slap me if I over-supervise, <laughs> because I don't mean to, um, that, that, uh, that I used to have a lot of people. 
But what I looked for is, so I think one of the most important traits is that is that they have a passion about what they want to do. Mm -hmm. They have a willingness to learn. Mm -hmm. And so um, I shy away from people that actually already know it all um, because you never do. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, and um, so a big part of, I, I think a big part of it is who are they as a person? Because mm -hmm. most of the rest of it you can, um, can be uh, people can learn and grow and 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 pick up on, but if they're not a very nice person, it'd be very hard. Um, and and uh, this is an industry that isn't very full of very. I, I have not run into very many people that I think um, are are uh, have questionable personalities in this in this field, which is really kind of cool. That was not true in my previous job. I mean, I was finally promoted high enough that there were people around me that I wouldn't want to trust with my mother. <laughs> uh, that in terms of, uh, and, and uh, they were out for themselves. And so, um, so, so a big part of it was looking for somebody that I thought I could work with well, um, because I knew that it was going to be a close working relationship no matter what. And you were going to have ups and downs. Uh, the one thing I didn't, under, I didn't know, um, and have a great appreciation for the winemakers during harvest because what a stressful time that is and for owners and winemakers mm -hmm. and so it's good to have people that actually understand people so that they can be very forgiving of that one really <laughs> this is what this is what upset you <laughs> uh, <laughs> that uh, um, so I was looking for somebody that I thought I could work with and I had actually hired um, other people, but they, uh, the first person that I, I thought I was hiring, and that was basically um, the original owner had kind of recommended the person, and I didn't know anything about winemaking, so I thought, I guess this, and the person was nice enough. I am actually glad that I ended up with Susie, mm -hmm. and, and really glad I ended up with um, Elizabeth following her, because they pushed me to make better wine, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And so the other thing I was looking for as I got more experienced is, winemakers are willing to work with almost anything that you give them, because they're kind of, you know, they'd almost rather buy a new barrel than have a raise in their salary sometimes it's they're that kind of passion mm -hmm. about what they do but sometimes you need to be told you need a new barrel mm -hmm. <laughs> okay mm -hmm. or you need a new piece of equipment because um, this will really help make better wine mm -hmm. and so I was also looking for people that would push me to make the I uh, to make the um, the right decisions in terms of what you spend money on my philosophy always has been and I can remember Elizabeth asking this question once. She, there was some piece of equipment that would save her a lot of time. And I said, do you need time? And she goes, well, not really when I'm doing that. And I said, well, then let's spend it on making better wine. If there's a piece of equipment that'll make better wine. Or if you need more time, that's, that's fine too. But if we don't need more time at that particular time of the year, let's not spend our money saving us time. Let's spend our money making better wine. Mm -hmm. So you want somebody who can push you mm -hmm. um, to make, because because I, I mean, uh, Elizabeth doesn't really have to ask unless she's buying a press or something. <laughs> um, it, um, 
she can buy what she wants. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate that she is very, she's as frugal with my money as I am. <laughs> and I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> there was a reason I could buy a winery. I never spent a dime. <laughs> I like that. Um, tell me about sort of as you got into the business here, how you developed uh, sort of strategies for selling your wine. You talk about being kind of isolated here. How did you go about selling wine? How did you kind of find that place? Um, I love it. So the the tasting room over the years, I, uh, it's it's interesting to actually take a look at what I'm what we do here. We could do better at selling wine, mm -hmm. and that's all on me. I love. The tasting room, and I love the customer interaction, and I and I still do. You meet the most fascinating people coming through the countryside, and I can almost guarantee that any person who's been through this winery, and tasted Elizabeth's wine, and then um, and and uh, will come back, mm -hmm. um, because this is not a stop along the way. It's a place to sit and stay. And people bring their dogs, they bring their kids. I've seen several generations now through, and their family. Um, that um, when Susie died, um, my customers were unbelievable. I mean, they just, I don't, they just kept on coming, and they always have been. Um, so as isolated as we are, we are busy. And so this tasting room is a real busy tasting room. And I always think it's due to two things. I, I, this, I maybe will have you edit this later, but I'm kind of charming. <laughs> I think we can probably leave that. It's probably okay. Yeah. So, so uh, and, and, and I am genuinely interested in them. Mm -hmm. And I've off, for anybody else who's ever worked the tasting room with me, I said, always know more about your customers than they know about you at first, because they will open up okay and and um, and and so I have people that come back over and over and over again and bring more people over and over and over again so even though it's out of the way um, this tasting room is very busy on the weekends well very busy is a relative term for where we're located but we do a pretty nice business and it has, it has increased a lot I used to always want to cover Susie's salary with the tasting room if I could, and um, and that's I'm well beyond that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. That uh, th that is it has really grown over the years. The difficult part of selling is dis distribution. Mm -hmm. It's not as much fun um, for me, and so it shows on how much time I actually <laughs> spend on it. And uh, it's hard to find distribu uh, distributors for small wineries. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of wine out there. And so we have a few small distributors that do okay, um, but they aren't selling tons of wine because we can't be in tons of places. But, um, but distribution is really difficult for small wineries because um, over the years, the distributors have consolidated. They've come and gone. I went through like four distributors in Colorado alone. And they finally dumped me when I and I was still selling 800 cases a year there. I said that's a lot for me, and and they said we know we were just shocked. Mm -hmm. But it, they were taken over by a big distributor that was just culling out small wineries, mm -hmm. and that happens quite a bit. So the distribution end of sales is tough. Um, it's um, um, I'm fortunate that the retail side of the business has has continued to grow. Mm -hmm. 
talk about some of the kind of uh, events you have here, some of, your, some of the kind of things you have to bring people to your winery. The um, dog friendly mm -hmm. is a big one. Mm -hmm. That um, And that we'll let them sit and have a picnic and taste outside and we go outside and bring the wine to them. Mm -hmm. They don't have to come into the little tasting room and get their next taste of wine. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, I would say um, dog friendly. Mm. As I'm, people ask now if they can have a wedding out here, and I go, if you like dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, the 27th of this month, the Irish Center Club is coming. Last year they brought 12. Um, and and c customers from all over would sit up here and they watch as they had a picnic down there and all the Irish setters are swimming and running around the pond and they go, this is fantastic. <laughs> but I have, so dog friendly is a big part of it. Um, outdoor tasting room has made a big difference um, to actually serve people outside, um, let them bring their food in, mm -hmm. let them sit and enjoy it and no rush. Mm -hmm. you, um, this is not an assembly line place at all. Um, people just sit. I've had people come up from Corvallis, and, and which is about 20 miles, and for the first time. And, and I had a couple here uh, a year or so ago, and they were and they were watching everybody with their dogs and, and their picnics and stuff. And she just looked at her husband and said, "Go home and get the dog." He said, "Are you serious?" She goes, "Yeah." I'm serious. I'm going to sit here and have a glass of wine. You're going to go home and get the dog. <laughs> so that's been a big one, and more people are traveling with their pets. Um, mm -hmm. The um, the uh, we have um, we do some music now on Sundays. Mm -hmm. We do jazz because I I looked around and said, what are my neighbors doing? My friends and neighbors, and um, they're none of them are doing jazz. So I thought, let's do it on Sunday when I'm not interfering with what they're doing on Friday and Saturday. Mm -hmm. So we do uh, Sunday jazz in the afternoon now. We've had a camp out for years, and it started with a customer saying, when are you going to let us stay? And um, so the first camp out was, I mean, bring a guitar if you have one. <laughs> we had a, just a few people sitting around. Um, I cooked some brats and because uh, I'm from Wisconsin. And uh, we had a camp out. Well, it's grown. Uh, when we had Starry Night here, we call it Starry Night. Um, when we did the eclipse, because we happened to be under the, mm -hmm. the total, uh, we had like 275 people here. But usually we have about 150. 160 campers, and uh, we have music that plays until the, my friend, the drummer's hands bleed. <laughs> and then I make everybody blackberry pancakes in the morning. And so, uh, and, and, uh, and off they go. So we try to keep it simple um, and, and comfortable. Um, this is a, um, this is a, um, a non-pretentious winery with in my estimation, and I'm a uh, fantastic one, okay? <laughs> that, uh, but we take, there's no pretense here. Um, if you don't know how to pronounce Pinot Gris, we're not gonna ridicule you for it. <laughs> we might, we will pronounce it properly in front of you, but we will not look at you and say it's, it's Gris. <laughs> uh, so, um, and it's worked. It's worked. Um, we have a nice mixture of customers. Nice. Talk about the importance uh, of being a, a woman-owned and operated winery here. I don't know that um, it made a huge difference in the beginning, um, but I think that more and more people pay some attention to that as well. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't used to really talk about it, 
but we now actually have it as one of the things that we talk about, um, women-owned and operated. And there aren't that many in terms of total ownership. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a lot of husbands and wives. There's a lot of couple industries, but but um, I, that that um, I have always been a supporter. I always try to point out one of the things I um, we named our port style wine nudge because I'm always trying to nudge people to do the right thing, and I try to point out to people. I said you have to remember that um, it took women and and um, uh, like 60 years to vote after black men. Mm -hmm. And you know how we feel about black men. Mm -hmm. We have a long ways to go. Mm -hmm. And so I've always felt that women ought to support women and, and, um, and, and that we ought to really pay attention to the total mankind. Uh, having spent so many years in the telephone company and I was the first corporate officer on the technical side of the business to be a woman, mm -hmm. and and there was there's things that we can help people navigate through mm -hmm. that will make their life a little easier, mm -hmm. and um, and so um, women supporting women I think is very important, and men supporting women I think is very important, and people just supporting all the people is very important. <laughs> um, that that uh, we are in an industry that has a lot of diversity, mm -hmm. and we ought to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. And, and um, Sebastian, for example, has been with me since 03. Mm -hmm. uh, Guadalupe left for a moment in time and found out that, that Paradise was back here. <laughs> so he, he, he had to wait a while to get back because he had been replaced. But um, it's nice to have long-term mm -hmm. employees that are friends mm -hmm. and, um, and that people that you really want to hang out with. And so I think that the, the women owned and operated, um, I find that you do get people that kind of pay attention to that mm -hmm. um, and want to be supportive. Mm -hmm. And there's many times that that support has been really nice to have. Mm -hmm. Have you had other women coming up in the industry coming to you for, uh, for pointers and advice? I think Elizabeth has more so than I, because mm -hmm. what do I know about making wine? <laughs> And more of them are on the winemaking side than on the ownership side. Um, so I think Elizabeth has more so um, than I have. Um, and and uh, everything kind of comes and goes. We've been together so long. I mean, we went out to visit women-operated women wineries, too, and have done mm -hmm. and, and kind of went down to Tai to visit with, Mar with, with uh, Mary Lee down there. and, and um, when 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 Penarash was still mm -hmm. under under Lynn, so that that um, kind of getting out, uh, uh, some of our outings we've kind of tried to get out mm -hmm. to the um, more of the women owned and operated. But the really cool thing is, I think all the women and men in this industry are just actually pretty fantastic. Um, that that uh, this is um, this is a. I think that some of the coolest people work in this industry, period. Um, it's, it's it, from the Castiles on down. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a cool industry mm -hmm. and a supportive industry. 
tell me about uh, speaking of the industry, uh, some of the, the changes you've seen in the industry since you became part of it. Uh, in addition to just pure size, what else about Oregon wine has changed since you became part of the industry? The um, I think that our forefathers um, set up really good standards, and we've continued to try to maintain and hold them and. So one of the things I think is pleasant that I've seen in the industry is that the people that started this industry are still in the industry <laughs> and they're still participating in it. So you, uh, you don't see all of them as often as you used to, but, but um, they are still interested in participating in the industry. So in spite of all the growth and all the new people, the um, the, the people that, that, that frame the industry are still participating and helping the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's been fantastic. Um, we've obviously seen big players come in, um, and some of them have been real supportive in terms of um, um, participating in the industry. So in spite of their size, I mean, that um, in, in, in spite of their size, they, they're on the committees, they're, they're, they're volunteering for different things, they um, will answer any of the questions you might have. Um, Kendall Jackson has like 200 acres right over that hill, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And, and um, the grower, uh, the, uh, and I have sat down with dinner. So, so some of the things haven't really changed as we've gotten bigger. Um, the, um, what has changed in this area is we've come, become closer from a marketing standpoint. One of the things that helps is my fellow wineries around here send people to me and I send people to them. And so we're kind of our biggest supporter, and so actually getting bigger has helped. It's not, it's not hurt. It's, it's helped to actually have more wineries around me. Not, it, isn't, uh, it isn't competition. Mm -hmm. It is, it is um, a, a destination. Mm -hmm. It's become more of a destination. Um, but it's not quite as intimate as it used to be. There's just so many, I mean, people come and they ask them where they've been visiting and I have no idea where the winery even is. Because those of us who actually run the tasting rooms don't get out mm -hmm. um, to visit tasting rooms. <laughs> so we see them in, in uh, educational sessions but, but don't really know necessarily what their wineries actually look like or how they're set up. Mm -hmm. So that's, so um, it's, it's, it's hard to be as close, in, in the, in the, when I first got in the industry, I was doing all the um, uh, Newport Seafood Festival and all those kind of things, and you really kind of knew most of the people in the industry. And um, that's no longer true. I would say I probably only know maybe, maybe a third or a half, because there's so many people in the industry now. Um, Is it, does it feel like the, the kind of, you talk about kind of the defining characteristic of Oregon wine when you came into it was all the kind of, all the cool people and all the willingness to share and, and, and help. Is, does that feel like it's still there? I, st I think it's still there. Um, that, um, I think, uh, one of the things I hope is still there, um, is that I always felt that this was an industry that would tell you the naked truth. So if, I actually had a poor product. I think other wineries would tell me if they tasted it. 
and and um, and and would let me know. And I've done that in the past, where I have actually gone out to another winery and I actually called up and said, "Do you have any idea what's going on at this tasting room?" <laughs> and 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 I and, and it wasn't and I and, I, and it wasn't in a mean spirited thing. Mm -hmm. Just so they know, um, because you can't fix something that you don't know exists, and so I think this industry still is pretty sharing in terms of, um, I th and I think it's essential. We should be critical of each other to each other, but never to the public. <laughs> and so, like, and like that, a family. like a family, yeah, that I can tell you something, but. But 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 if somebody came into my tasting room and said something, I would just say must have been a bad day or something. That 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 just isn't the case. Um, and and I think we still have that. But I think that's one of the things that actually sets us apart, because this industry rose up by everybody getting better. The wine has gotten better in Oregon. You really don't go out, and 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 there used to be time that that you'd go out and you could have a pretty bad bottle. Uh, but it has, we have really all gotten better. And that's essential if you're gonna be a little gnat in the wine industry like Oregon is. Um, you better have a good reputation. Mm -hmm. Because um, I don't think people are gonna be streaming into Iowa anytime soon to do uh, out-of-state wine tours. But they do come here. Mm -hmm. um, and they come here for the food and the wine and, and um, and the beer and the spirits and the and just the beauty of the whole freaking place, <laughs> but um, but I think it's essential that we all are are um, learning together mm -hmm. and all willing to learn mm -hmm. um, because um, we all do better if we all do better. Mm -hmm. And so on that note, what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What do you see as the, the next decade of, for the Oregon wine industry? I think. The Oregon wine industry has a real bright future. Um, I think it's always going to be hard for the smaller wineries to do anything other than the tourism end of it um, because it's just difficult on the distribution side. And I don't, and that could kind of change too because I have seen over my 22 years small distributors start up and do okay and then get bought up and, and so it ebbs and flows. But I think um, Oregon is such a beautiful state, and um, and a big part of it is, um, is uh, I mean, in terms of the wine industry, I think we'll always have people that want to come to Oregon and taste wine, mm -hmm. and our own people like doing that and bringing out their people. So I think it 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 will continue. I think the growth on small wineries will maybe subside a little bit, um, but the wine industry itself will continue to flourish, I think. Um, I, I think it's very bright. Uh, I think that um, we all need to worry about what's happening with the temperatures. It actually has helped Oregon. I hate to say that because I don't think it's a good thing, period. Um, but Oregon is more consistent than we've ever been as a result of our weather um, uh, and the climate changing. And so the the early 70s, there were there were vintages that were difficult because it never warmed up. And even when I was here in the um, in the 90s, in the early 90s, with the telephone company, I can still remember. I was the general manager in Oregon, and and uh, June was just wet and cold all June. And it was 1990, 
And I looked at my chief of staff and I said, does summer ever come to Oregon? <laughs> and he said, do you know what the difference between December and June is in Oregon? And I said, no. He said, December has 31 days. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, I got it. We just don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, uh, consistently. Um, 2010, the one thing you, you, that when you're in this business, you remember weather, you remember years. 2010 was cold, but that was the last time we really had a cold summer. Mm -hmm. And it was so cold that we couldn't get our Pinot or our Chardonnay ripe here. Mm -hmm. And so we made a little sparkly and they had to call it a day. Um, you have to be willing to do that because I looked and they said, I do not want to be selling this wine three, four years from now when we couldn't get it ripe. And so we tried to find somebody who would buy it for champagne, but we finally made our, our own sparkling method to champagne. Thank God we only made 200 cases because that was a lot of work, but it was delicious. <laughs> when you don't have any of the facilities, that was a lot of work, yeah, but it was delicious. So I'd laugh at customers and I'd say, I'm selling it for 30 bucks a bottle. And, um, and I've got about 90 into it. <laughs> but you have, you, have to, you have to learn to live with farming. Mm -hmm. And not every year is going to be glorious. And so you better be good at um, saving for the rainy day. My Midwestern values paid off there. <laughs> Talk about some of the, sort of the changes that you've uh, in terms of grapes and other things here that you sort of implemented over the years, uh, Elizabeth talked a little bit about some of the new varietals that you're growing here, the, se the Seven Whites. Yep. Talk about kind of how the evolution of, of Airlie's brand, I guess. Yeah. Um, I always thought we'd probably be taking out some varieties because everybody was just growing two mm -hmm. or three maybe at the most, and we had so many here in the beginning. Um, but it has really been nice to have the the varieties if if customers can't find something they like here they are going to have a hard time finding wine that they like um, um, and the real fun part for me is Elizabeth makes them all so well that I don't have to worry about what they're asking to taste it all is good you're going to like some better than others but it's all good um, so we have done we we, we actually need to um, um, I need to step up my game because we need to start replanting seriously here. Um, that we have a Geneva double hanging curtain system that is uh, a, a, a massive work. Um, it is hard to maintain, mm -hmm. and it and it takes a lot of work. Um, and and I'm lucky to have Sebastian and 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 Guadalupe, who have who are familiar with it, um, taking care of it. But. It is not going to be easy to find workers, um, and and so like right now we would like to have like four or five more people in the vineyard pulling leaves, yeah. and we had them last week, but we're we're missing them this week because there's a better assignment for them, and I don't blame the people, yeah. and uh, we aren't letting anybody in, so um, it's just difficult for small. Um, uh, wineries and so I'm looking at changing the trellis system going to a more um, uh, mechanizable system uh, as we replant it becomes difficult because the row spacings here were so wide so you have to rip out whole sections because you can't spray half a row and then change the and so um, the planning for it is kind of dif difficult but I think this site will continue to grow a lot of of different varieties mm -hmm. because it's one of the reasons why 
we get a lot of customers mm -hmm. returning over and over and over again because there's something for everybody. And, um, and so, um, this, this, uh, so, so we have changed some things in the vineyard. Um, we, we planted some, um, new, new, uh, Pinot Noir, it was all Pomard, mm -hmm. um, although I still love the Pomard clone, um, that I wouldn't ever live without it. <laughs> um, but we, we planted some, some new um, uh, a Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. uh, we have um, experienced Red Blotch mm -hmm. and kind of one of the earlier um, vineyards that actually alerted people to the fact that there was something radically wrong going on in the valley. And when I first started talking about it, everybody kind of poo-pooed it a little bit, like um, couldn't. I mean, like the, the, the we just couldn't get our Chardonnay ripe, mm -hmm. and 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 um, and 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 everybody kind of it was kind of maybe the site just. I said no, there's just something wrong, and it looks like it has spider mites, because it was kind of a goldish leaf only at the end of. Only at the end, and it, Elizabeth and I could stand up, and you could see the Chardonnay, and and um, and it just happened at the very end, and so that's been a real learning experience. And we still don't know enough about Red Blotch to know exactly if I, I've had the. I've, I love having OSU real close because they come out and visit, and and they're very helpful, okay. and um, and so the bug people have been out. We don't, don't seem to have an abundance of what would be spreading it. It appears that it, that it came in with the vines. I suspect that um, I, I've always suspected, and it's kind of coming out in the literature now that. Um, um, like all of us have cancer in us, and and during the stressful years of, of hot summers or the cold, we had that when that 2010 kind of set the standard here in terms of that was such a cold year that um, that I think the grapes went through a jolt and and it kind of brought out some diseases that were there all along. Um, so. We've got some replanting to do because of red blotch. Um, it came in with some of our new Pinot. Well, I call it new Pinot. It was planted in 08, but it's new for us. <laughs> um, we have red blotch in the new Pinot. It wasn't the fault of the nursery. Nobody knew to test for it. So it's not a, a casting blame type of thing. But you, that, that uh, I think that one of the things that, from a vineyard standpoint, that worries me most is it used to be a little simpler, okay. and and with um, global warming and more vineyards and everything else happening around us, we have to pay a lot more attention to the science. You can't just take a stick and put it in the ground anymore and call it a day. These were all self-rooted. My vineyard was planted when nobody who I don't have phylloxera to my knowledge. I've had it tested a couple times, but um, I'd never do that. Okay, I think you have to pay attention in the vineyard a lot more to the science. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's part of the exciting part about being in this business because it's always changing and evolving. And you just have to have the patience of a saint. Cause <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people it's lucky I'm young. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's, uh, so the vineyard, uh, we're, it's going to be going through some radical changes in the next few years because we need to get on with it. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a, the, the mindset right now about the only part that won't be replanted is the Gewurztraminer and the and the Marischal Foch, mm -hmm. because they're both in kind of sketchy areas for growing grapes anyway. Um, the trees are coming up in the west. When that was when that was logged in 02, that actually helped my vineyard, but they're now. 30 feet tall, 20 feet tall, and they're going to get taller. Mm -hmm. And um, and so the sun sets on my Gewürztraminer a little earlier than I'd want it setting on most other grapes. Mm -hmm. And um, and the same is true of my Marichal Foch over here, because I have the, the Dun Forest over there. And so it doesn't get um, the morning sun as early. Mm -hmm. And so you need something that's going to ripen. And so I can live with the old trellis system on a few areas but the rest of it really needs to be updated mm -hmm. um, with rootstock and plants and mm -hmm. so we've got our work ahead of us coming I guess up. so yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what else are you seeing as you look ahead to early and early's future the um i see this as just kind of the the, the perfect 5000 case winery mm -hmm. you know um, just that 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 uh, you can you can uh, that that it, my friends all laugh at me. They said, "Do you ever take a day off?" And I said, "Yeah, once in a while," but it's but I but I don't. I, I can kind of do what I want most of the time, mm -hmm. and I kind of want to be here. I've already done. I traveled a lot with my previous job. I was transferred like. 14 times in 22 years. I don't want to move. I like having my dogs. Um, so um, I think that this is a perfect place to live and, um, and, and eke out a living at the same time. <laughs> I get it. Uh, what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? Um, do it. That that um, the Bjornsons often tell me that uh, when they came around, I can still remember when they they're from Minnesota. They they came to the tasting room and they were kind of they were kind of looking at getting in the industry, and and um, and when they um, uh, got here, they, I, I was excited that they were excited to get into the industry. And this is several years ago now, but but um, they 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 always laughed and they said you were the one that just said just do it. Um, life is way too short for people to be, e now I, it's easier maybe for me to say that because I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't make a massive amount of money. I, I left the telephone company before they got stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, money isn't there, everything. And, and people live their lives um, not paying attention to what really makes you happy, um, and and um, and people have way too much stuff. Only in America could we have storage sheds for people that have oversized houses. Quit buying so much stuff and start living. Um, you'll be much happier. Um, so if people are really interested, I'd say jump in. Mm -hmm because you can go do something else if you have to. Um, but this is a great thing. Um, so um, I think people shouldn't hesitate and I think people spend a lot of time um, waiting for their next life when they should be living this one. I like that, that's excellent, excellent advice. Is there anything? Okay.
Well, that's all the questions that we have for you today. Uh, okay. Is there anything that we should have covered that we didn't? Anything I should have asked you that I did not? Well, I think that's pretty good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for your answers. And You're welcome. We'll watch you, watch you go free here. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.